Welcome to N20XX. This series takes the listener, year by year, into the future. From 2040 to 2195. If you like emerging tech, ecotech, futurism, permaculture, apocalyptic survival scenarios, and disruptive science, sit back and enjoy short stories that showcase my research into how the future may play out. This episode follows an ongoing arc. To follow the arc from the beginning, listen to these episodes in order. Episode 1, Taking Back Life, Episode 10, Immortal, and Episode 19, Robot Police. This list is in the show notes. A team of private investigators and their robots crawl all through the hospice buildings. They map points of interest floor by floor, room by room human remains, signs of forced entry, and locations of proprietary technology are identified, power is restored and robot dogs equipped with keycards rove, recording video and lighter for 3D mapping. Where bodies rotted, now bones remain. In closed-off rooms, the air smells rancid. Outside, moss, weeds, and vines cover the parking lot and road. The once well-kept gravel paths are now totally gone. Vines cover the building's lower exterior. Where doors and windows were left open, birds, insects, and rodents entered, build nests, and kill prey. In mid-afternoon, a jet flies over, slowing as its wings tilt to 90 degrees. It descends and touches down not far from the main entrance. The roar of the engines cut to silence. The chief of investigators, lean and clean cut, runs to the plane. A robot, built to withstand bullets, climbs out of the plane and walks past the chief. Guns are integrated into the robot's arms. Meg Cruz climbs out, not taking the chief's hand. Wearing tailored pants, a button-down shirt, and a broad belt, she walks toward the main building, as the chief hustles to walk beside her. The frames of her AR glasses were worn by a star in a 1920s film, and remained untouched in a private collection, until she bought them. A second bodyguard robot climbs out of the plane and follows her, while the first one waits ahead. The chief asks, is there anything I can get for you? Meg stops before the buildings, places her hands on her hips, scans everything, and says, no, thank you. Do you think this was where my husband tried to find immortality? The chief says, I believe so. If you follow me inside. Meg nods and proceeds. Her first standalone enters the building before them. The second trails behind scanning the area. In a lobby now littered with leafy debris, he says, may I share a map with you? She nods and swipes the air in front of her, then taps the air to her left. He taps the air, taps the air, grabs in the air, sweeps toward her glasses, and releases. She looks over the augmented reality object he's given her. He looks at the same object through his glasses, making various hand gestures as he speaks. These represent human remains. These are hospital beds. Here's a lab, and here, another lab. Here we found patient records. All the patients were terminally ill. Meg nods. He says, this is a data center. The recorders for all the cameras have been destroyed. She says, that's not good. When did that happen? He says, we're trying to find that out. Don't worry, though, there's sure to be a backup. Once we find that, we can see what happened here until the power failed. From a third floor window looking down on the lobby, two investigators see Meg. The first says, the richest woman in the US. The second says, she wasn't even in Ed Cruz's will. The first says, what? The second says, Ed Cruz had two children, the only ones named in his will, but in the same week that he killed himself, both of his kids killed themselves separately. So, all his wealth defaulted to her. The first says, that smells fishy. 
The second says, yeah, but Ed and his kids were each in different states and not in communication with each other for months. The first says, where was she? The second says, another country. Korea, I think. There was the media attack and Ed lost all the cattle. There are good reasons they all died, but it does seem too lucky for Meg Cruz. In the lower middle-class living room, Jed and Wilson move about on multi-directional treadmills. Supports extend from each treadmill base and hold waist-high rings around the boys, keeping them in place. The boys wear low-friction shoes, and their feet slide on plastic as they walk and run. They also wear VR headsets. Florence sits, sipping coffee, watching two monitors set on a table. The monitors show what each son sees in-game. They play ruins of firebend. In a lush forest, they battle a giant tusk boar. Wilson, 15 and scrawny, runs up a slope shouting, it's after me. Jed, 14 and tougher looking, laughs. Florence says, Jed, help your brother. You guys are a team. Jed pulls an arrow from his quiver, draws it back on his bowstring, aims, and fires at the backside of the boar. The arrow bounces off its back. It halts and turns to look back, knocking down saplings with its extensive tusks. Marvin enters the room using a walker. Florence says, good morning Marvin. Have a seat. Do you want breakfast? He makes his way to the table, I would. You know I just must find a way to repay you for all your help. Florence gets up and heads to the kitchen. No worries. I know you will. He slowly sits in a chair and pushes the walker to the side. He looks at the monitors. One shows the view backing up as a giant boar charges. The other shows the view charging the boar from the side and a sword swinging and cutting the boar's hide. Florence brings a plate of Sam's eggs and a cup of coffee. She says, this coffee is grown a couple of miles from here in one of those high-rises. It's real coffee. I ground the beans myself. Giantess farms everything locally. Wilson shouts, I got it. Jed shouts, yeah. Marvin tries to eat slowly, saying, this is good. She says, I'll get you more. We have plenty. Are you feeling okay? You look like you're in pain. Marvin says, it's the condition the doctors gave me. It feels like I'm on fire. They gave me pain medication for it when I was in hospice. His eyebrows quiver. She gazes at the ceiling for a moment and says, this is strictly between you and me, okay? Marvin says, okay. She switches off the mic near the monitors, then says, there's a whole pharmacy worth of stuff in the locker rooms at the police station. I put a lot of it in an incinerator weekly. But I worry about you getting hooked. Marvin says, I've been on mass doses of some of the strongest stuff. They thought I'd die. She says, but don't you get addicted? Marvin says, I do, but I get over it if I don't get any. She says, I'll see what I can do. She brings him another plate of eggs. He goes to the bathroom for a long time, then goes to his room and lies down. Whenever he uses the bathroom, it smells strange, and his room smells strange. It smells like peppermint and something else, like something bitter. It smells otherworldly. Maybe he's a space alien. No. It's obvious this arrangement makes him on him four tablets. He doesn't like being cared for. She gets it. She never want to live off the kindness of strangers. When her boys are grown, that's another story. She's sacrificed so much to raise them. They can take care of her in her old age. On one hand, she expected Marvin to die within days of her bringing him to her home. On the other hand, she has the room in her home, food is cheap, and she does like his company. It's nice to have another adult around the house. It's kind of amazing how much he does eat. He's as skinny as a rake, yet he eats more than two pro wrestlers. And this is an extra weird thing. He sheds a lot. He must be constantly growing new skin. 
maybe the doctors grafted him with a plant. The next morning, Marvin wakes in the single bed that once belonged to Flo's daughter. He turns and notices the medicine bottle on the night table. Sitting up causes pain throughout most of his body. Most of the label is torn off the bottle. He opens the lid and recognizes the little blue pills. Strong stuff. Feeling excited for the first time in months, he taps four tables into his palm, pops them into his mouth, kicks his head back, and swallows. Using the walker, he makes his way down the hall. In the living room, the front door is propped open, and cold air floods the floor. The boys greet Marvin while eating cereal. Flo leans through the kitchen door and says, Good morning Marvin. I'm just making the boys lunches. I'll be out in a minute. Marvin says, Good morning. Don't worry about putting things away. I'll tidy up after you folks leave. Flo lets out a little scream. Marvin lowers his head and says, What is it? Flo says, My God, you look younger. Is that still you? Everyone's changing before my eyes. My sons are getting taller by the minute, and now you, your illness must have made you look older. Marvin says, I am older. I told you I am 77. Flo shakes her head slowly, you are not. Marvin shrugs. What else can he do? Flo brings Marvin a plate of eggs. The family grabs jackets and bags, and head out all saying bye Marvin. Marvin eats, already feeling his aches and pains fading. He begins to take deeper breaths, stretch, and move his limbs more. Leaving the walker by the table, he takes his breakfast out to the front porch. Several little birds fly in and out of a large bush by the road. The only other house he can see is overgrown with tall grass and vines. Branches from the last storm cover the roof and yard. Returning inside, he picks up around the house. Then he wanders around the yard until he finds the lawnmower under the back porch. Its battery sits on top of it, plugged in. He pulls the mower out, slides in the battery, and mows the yard. Lots of people don't keep lawns anymore. In the 30s when water supplies faltered, lawns were the first to go. But North Idaho isn't like Southern California, Kansas, not to mention Nevada. The unruly grass fills the bag. Marvin must empty it four times before he finishes. Cut grass smells like decades past. As a teen in Baltimore in the 80s, he mowed lawns with a guy who smoked a lot of pot and listened to soul records all the time. Marvin had grass stains on all his jeans at that time. Meg sits with Alton, an investigator, in front of a video wall showing eight windows. They watch a husk of a man on a hospital bed on one of the windows. Alton says, you can see how he moved there? By this time all the others have died. She nods and says, he just moved again. Alton points to another window showing the hospice entrance. There's the woman and two boys coming in. They'll head up to his room. He uses controls he can see through his glasses to fast forward to the point where they bring a wheelchair into his room. We're going to see them lift him out of bed and get him into that wheelchair. Meg says, do you have any better footage of that woman? Alden says, we're working on it. She's a police officer. Meg says, well yes, she sent police bots all through the buildings. He points to a third window and taps the air to start a playing. See, there they are wheeling him out. She leans in closer. Is it a police car? He says, yes. She shakes her head and says, he has something that belongs to me. Alton says, his treatment? She says, yes. All the other variants failed. If he's still alive, that means he has the only variant that works. That's got to be worth millions, perhaps billions. My husband spent years and a fortune on this project. I'd hate to see all that research disappear. As Marvin puts the mower away, he hears thumping coming from the house. 
Oh no. Looking around, he finds a garden trowel in a plastic pot, then walks around to the front. A loud bang comes from inside. If only he has a phone, he'd stay outside and call 911. Flo is the police chief after all. He'll have a look through the front door. When he walks across the front porch a figure flashes past a window. His heart speeds up. The last time he was in any kind of fight seems like a lifetime ago. He opens the door. Jed and Wilson run and jump in their VR treadmills, wearing their headsets. Marvin shuts his eyes, takes a long deep breath, and sets the trowel down on the handrail. Inside he says, what are you guys doing home? They continue to run and jump. Marvin shouts, hello? They slow to standstills. Jed takes off his headset and says, school is closed. One of the monitors shot another monitor in the foot. Wilson takes his headset off. Both boys laugh. Wilson says, my class was mostly empty before that, anyway. Marvin says, you can do your schoolwork from here, right? Wilson, you did your school at home when you had the flu. They reluctantly nod. Marvin walks over to the table with the two monitors on it. Jed says, hey you're not using the walker. Marvin says, well, I feel better. Your mom brought me some medicine. I saw your mom do this. I'll turn on these monitors and you can both log into your schools. I'll make sure you do your studies and you can game during recess. Wilson puts his headset back on and logs into class. He likes school more than Jed. Jed frowns and says, can I game first and then do my class? Marvin says, no. It's not summer vacation. He smiles calmly. Jed snorts but puts his headset on and logs into class. Marvin turns on the monitors and puts on headphones to first listen to Wilson's class and then Jed's to get a sense of where they are in their studies. Marvin pulls weeds in the yard. Jed and Wilson game on their treadmills. Flo makes pasta in the kitchen talking to her friend through her glasses. She says, nobody's happy with the new setup. Kids are dropping out. Of course, wealthy schools are doing fine. American schools are set up to be unequal. Conservatives and liberals are fine with that, as long as their school is one of the better ones. I don't know Luana, they found monitors yelling at kids and allowing really bad behavior from some of the kids. A lot of these monitors haven't been daycare workers or even babysitters. There's cam footage of one monitor who always goes off and sits in his car during lunch, and you can see the smoke coming out of the car window. Like, it's a big joke. It's become a meme. And then it shows kids, kindergartners, just wandering away from the school grounds. Like, standing out in the middle of the street. America doesn't want to invest in her children. Marvin comes in, and Flo nods to him. She says, Luana, I gotta go. Okay, see you. She taps the air. Hi Marvin. Marvin smiles and shuffles toward her. He says, I started a mulch pile behind the shed. She says, you can do that? She brushes bangs from her eyes. So, Marvin, you know Jed and Wilson's grades have gotten better since you've been monitoring their schooling. Marvin shrugs. Well, I am the oldest of six, so I knew I couldn't just let them game the whole time until you got home. She says, I also know you worry about earning your stay here. You know, it'd cost me a fortune to hire someone to look after them. Food is dirt cheap. If you help keep their grades up, that would more than make up for the cost of food. Marvin nods, that sounds good. Jed steps off his treadmill, takes his headset off, and says, he can't control a lot of things. He doesn't have VR dots. Flo says, I've been thinking about that. Marvin, you don't have a connect link, right? Marvin says, they took my smartphone from me when I entered hospice. Jed laughs. You had a smartphone? Flo says, I took the liberty of looking you up at the police station. 
records say you're 77 years old. I know you say you're that age, but Marvin, is there another explanation? I just can't believe that you're 77. Marvin says, the records are right. That's how old I am. Flo shakes her head and says, well, if we go and get you a new Connect Link and VR dots, they won't believe that you're 77. I'm afraid they'll think you're an illegal immigrant. Marvin nods. He studied himself in the mirror and found it hard to believe his eyes. His skin has gained back its tautness. His wrinkles have smoothed out. His eyes no longer appear sunken. Even his afro has turned from white back to mostly black with just a few stray white hairs here and there. He says, I know you're a police chief, but I was thinking I could get some sort of fake ID just so I can get back on the map. I won't do anything you don't want me to. Flo walks over to the couch, slowly sits, and says, a lot of people have lost family members. I just had the idea that if you lost a younger family member, you could pick up where they left off. Marvin shuffles his feet nervously. Someone knocks at the door. Flo says, I wonder who that could be. She walks to the door and opens it to a tall woman with sharp features wearing a corporate suit and weird glasses. The woman looks familiar as she says, Florence Beltzer, my name is Mrs. Cruz. I'm looking for a patient of mine, Marvin Turner. I don't want to alarm you, but he may be contagious. May I speak with him? Flo looks past the woman. Two standalones wait in the yard, and four black hummers are parked on the road. Flo turns to Marvin, but he isn't in the living room. Jed and Wilson hold their headsets at their sides, watching the exchange. Meg says, may I come inside and speak to him? We have footage of you taking drugs from the police station locker for confiscated items. My plan isn't to get you in trouble. She snaps her fingers and personnel climb out of the Hummers. She pushes her way into the house and past Flo. He may have told you he's older than he is. You see, he suffers from a mental illness. Flo doesn't know what to do. Meg walks down the hall. Marvin? Personnel cross the street and walk into Flo's yard and the woods behind Flo's house. What are called limos are autonomous cars that have had drive controls and dashboards removed and have had the passenger area set up for comfort. Tanner rides in her limo. Sitting in the cushion seat in the back, she rests her feet on a pillow on the table. She stretches one arm out and injects it with a needle. When the plunger is all the way down, she pulls the needle out and pull releases the rubber cord. Her eyelids flutter and she sucks in her cheeks. Several heartbeats later, she lets out a compressed breath. That's so much better. She stretches. A San Francisco street passes the tinted windows. Besides a few cars, the street is empty. All the homeless structures are gone. Most of the buildings have been fortified. Windows on first and second stories have been bricked in. Armor doors face the sidewalks. Tanner snaps and says call Beverly. Beverly, hi, it's Tanner. Yes, it is me. I'm back in town. No. Do you want the long version or the short version? Okay. So, I went to this hospice. Because I was dying. Yes, no, now I'm not. And before I knew it all the people in my group were dying at the same time. No, like dying dead. They all stopped moving and were removed in plastic bags. I was so scared. I don't know, it was bad medicine. I borrowed a phone from a nurse and called Nord, and he came to get me, but they wouldn't let him in. They fired the nurse. I never heard from Nord. He waited out front. And then, you know, the media attack happened. All of the sudden the hospital staff freaked out and left. I tried to get someone to help me. They just said they were sorry, and they left. I was all alone. I searched and couldn't find anyone, so I went downstairs. 
I found a phone and called Nord, that time when he came to get me no one stopped him from coming in. I called him one evening and he was there the next afternoon. Yes, I'm fine, just a little sleepy. After the phone call, Tanner tells the car to take her to the new boardwalk where it lets her out. She walks between two stores to reach the walk. The breeze pulls at her long brown hair loosely tied in the back. She wears a shirt made of unbleached wool dyed with natural ingredients. Some of the pain comes back, but she feels more cognitive. It's sad that she must choose between lost mental clarity and pain, but she planned on being dead by now. People walk around here, that's a relief. It's hard to know how many people live in the city. It can feel like a ghost town since she's been back. Walking across the wide boardwalk, she reaches the handrail and gazes at the waves hitting rocks against the cliffside far below. The sunshine feels great. She wishes Star Coffee was still around. Someone behind her says, Tanner? Tanner turns. Jennifer Warhammer stands gawking, wearing a halter top and designer jeans, her frizzy hair has highlights. Oh dear, she always came to parties Benny threw. What did she do for a living? Something at a talent agency. Jennifer says, Tanner? Tanner, is that really you? Tanner nods and says, oh. Jennifer says, you look great. Tanner smiles and says, thank you. Jennifer's expression grows stern, and she says, no, I mean you really look great. Tanner looks up and down the boardwalk and says, oh, you know, I changed my diet. Jennifer says, who's your doctor? Are they a surgeon? Tanner laughs and says, I've just been going to the gym again. Jennifer says, I'm not joking. Who's your doctor? I'm really asking. I'm not trying to flatter you. Little bits of spittle form on the edges of her mouth. Tanner sidesteps and says, I think there's been a mistake. Jennifer steps forward, I have money. You can make a lot of money. We can make a lot of money. I know people. I know Taylor Fast. I know Justin Woodlake. Tanner backs away looking behind her to make sure not to bump into anyone. She says, Tanner is my aunt. You think I'm Tanner? Jennifer's expression crumbles as she says, we can make a deal. I can reach the people who'll pay the most for whatever it is you found. She waves her hand over Tanner. Tanner says, I have to go. I'm not who you think I am. She turns and hurries away. Should she run? Thank you for listening. I will never run ads on this podcast. Please take the time to rate, review, and subscribe so that more future-minded people can find this show. My landing page is n20xx.com. There, you can find the companion website to this podcast that includes an illustrated timeline and glossary.